Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, as you and I connect up today, there are some big question marks hanging over the entire American populace. Uh, election Day came and went yesterday, but uh, to my understanding, there is no no clear winner at this point. Well, that's the way I see it, too. And as of last night, well, frankly, as a Trump supporter, I went to bed thinking that if we can hold all the states that we're leading in, we'll be okay. As of this morning, that is still the case. And again, we're doing this on Wednesday morning, but as of this time, that is still the case. But there seems to be some question as to whether his majority will hold in several of the states like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, North Carolina and Georgia. One thing I think they may be overlooking in this is that votes yet to come in in Georgia and North Carolina are partially suburban votes. And there is a lot of belief that President Trump has alienated a lot of suburban voters. That may be true, but I think that is actually less true in the American South. And that's something that it doesn't seem like the media pundits have considered adequately. And, you know, sometimes when I think of things like this and wonder why nobody on the TV screen is talking about these things, I kind of think maybe what we really need to do is pass a law to Congress that would provide that none of these commentators should be allowed to say anything without running it through me first. And obviously that is ridiculous. <laughs> and yet Mark, Mark Zuckerberg and the founders of Twitter and, and Facebook and these other various entities seem to think they have the right to edit anything that they disagree with. So why shouldn't I? But anyway, so We'll just have to see. But basically for today, I had two plans as to what we would talk about today, not only today, but for the sessions coming up as well. One was if Trump was successful in this election, and the other was if he wasn't. And I think probably you and I should look at the two plans. The plan that I had if he was successful was that we would keep on teaching the Constitution because the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, just as the Bible is our main textbook in the way of divine wisdom. The Constitution takes that wisdom and applies it to the practical affairs of a nation. And as our nation moves ahead under President Trump, we need to understand what powers the Constitution gives him, what powers the Constitution withholds from him and some of the rights that President Trump has been seeking to uphold, like free exercise of religion, free speech, and so on, we'll need to understand some of the basis for this. So that was my plan. If President Trump wins the election, now if he doesn't, I'm going to look over here, what was the plan if he doesn't win? <laughs> hmm. My plan if he doesn't win was we teach the Constitution. There we go. Because we need to emphasize the rights that we have. We need to emphasize the limits the Constitution places upon 
the president, I guess maybe we need to emphasize that more if it's the president that we disagree with and if it's the president we do agree with. But point of the matter is, win or lose or draw, we follow the same plan here. The same plan is we teach the Constitution. I recall a cartoon that came out, I don't know, this must have been 20 years ago or so. So it was this young man who was sitting there reading the Constitution, and somebody asked, what are you reading? The Constitution. The Constitution? Well, why are you reading that? And he said, well, my mom used to tell me that if all else fails, go to the original instructions. There are the original instructions. And so the plan either way is we teach the Constitution. What thoughts do you have on this, Brian? Well, I think that uh, you're right on in terms of uh, if there was ever a time for needing to understand and apply the principles of the Constitution, it's now. Um, I, I didn't feel like I had a lot emotionally invested in this particular election, but I will admit I have the same unease that a lot of people have as long as the question remains open as to, to what the outcome is going to be. And, uh, you know, given the, the discussions you and I have had and talking about, you know, the actual powers of the presidency versus, you know, how we tend to perceive it as an all-powerful emperor-like uh, position, th- that makes me think I may be a little bit misguided because I'm putting more emphasis on the presidency than perhaps is actually due the presidency. Would you agree, disagree? Am I, am I off base there? Well, first of all, I would agree with you in this respect that as far as the three branches of government are concerned, the framers intended that the legislature, the Congress, would be the preeminent branch. That is the branch that exercises will, the branch that determines the direction of the neighborhood or of the of the nation and the neighborhood. The executive, as Hamilton says in the Federalist, exercises force, that is the exercise the president carries out the will of the legislature. And the judiciary, which he says is the least dangerous branch, just exercises judgment. They just interpret what the Congress has decided. And so we should be placing more emphasis on Congress, and it does look at this point as though there are several Republican gains in Congress, the House, though not enough to regain a majority in the House. And, well, there may be some losses in the Senate. It, at this point, appears that the Republicans will not become the minority party, at least. And there are still some races yet to be decided there. John James there in Michigan is, I think, doing a remarkably good race up there as he's running against an incumbent. John James is, well, he's a, he's a very articulate black veteran, businessman, many other things like this. And, of course, the reason that he is doing so well obviously has to be that I sent him $25, and he <laughs> should mention that in his acceptance speech. But, but anyway, so there, the things are going pretty well there. However, the fact is things are not the same practically as they were back in 1789 when our Constitution was adopted. Today, it seems like the executive branch and the judicial branch have grown greatly in power. Well, while, while the legislature, <coughs> excuse me, 
Well, well, the legislative branch has been somewhat restrained. And I consider that somewhat dangerous. You know, we looked at the Roman Empire, and Rome was a republic. It was a republic for almost 700 years. 500 years if you start with when the Roman Constitution was adopted for the republic. SPQR, the Senate of Rome, was established, and they would select somebody to be an administrator or executive or sometimes in emergencies give him emergency powers and call him a dictator or a dictator. But it seems like the best way to mark when Rome ceased to be a republic and became an empire was when instead of the emperor or dictator simply serving at the will of the Senate and doing what the Senate directed him to do, Instead, the Senate simply became a mouthpiece that rubber-stamped what the emperor told them to do. And I'm afraid we've moved in that direction quite a bit. You know, there's one thing that I found quite interesting, and yesterday at the elections, I served as a poll watcher in a majority black district, but it is interesting to watch people as they came in to vote and remembering the concept of equality. And I remember one man walked in, a large black man. This man was, well, as I first saw him enter, I thought he was possibly the biggest man I had ever seen. He was way, way, I'm 6'1". He was way, way taller than I was, almost reached the top of the door. And he was also extremely overweight. I would guess his weight as being easily 400 pounds, 500 would not surprise me. He came in, he gave his credentials, they gave him one ballot. And around that same time, there was this older lady who came in, and she was small. Couldn't have been more than five feet. She was very thin. Couldn't have weighed more than 100 pounds, probably quite a bit less. They gave her one ballot. We had people there who coming in as businessmen or in business suits, maybe government officials of power, maybe having handled multi-million dollar deals that day. One ballot. People coming in in wheelchairs. One ballot. And the idea that there is a certain equality in America. If you've fallen behind in your credit card payments during the shutdown, you're probably feeling some added pressures. And even a brief history of late payments can lead to a big drop in your credit score. But you don't have to solve these problems alone. Trinity Debt Management can help. We'll work with your creditors, put a stop to late fees and other penalties, and make a plan that helps you get caught up. We'll also consolidate your bills into one easy-to-manage monthly payment and negotiate much lower interest rates. Not only will you find immediate relief, you'll save thousands. And don't worry, it's not a loan. It's a smart way to get back on track. All you have to do is give Trinity a quick call and we'll take care of the rest. Right now, no one really knows what the future will bring. But one thing is for sure. If your debt has you down, we should talk. Here's the number. Call 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. 
You've heard me talking about my pillow for three years, folks. It's the truth. I get the best sleep of my life with a my pillow. You can do it too. 60 day money back guarantee, 10 year warranty made in the USA. You'll sleep well or you'll get your money back. Go to mypillow.com, click on the radio listener special, use my promo code USA, get two MyPillow premium pillows for the price of one, or call 1 800 951 8175. Get the best sleep of your life and do it now. Balance of nature is fruits and vegetables in a capsule, changing the world one life at a time. When I first switched over, because I stopped taking the other supplements I was taking and switched over all the way to Balance of Nature, I really noticed a huge difference. It was amazing. Like better sleep, better attention, better energy. It was just really, really great. Balance of Nature is now offering 35% off on any new preferred order. Go to balanceofnature.com today and use discount code USA. When thinking about life insurance, my accident reinforced you never know what tomorrow might bring. That's why I reached out to AccuQuote. AccuQuote helps people find a life insurance policy that meets their needs. Since 1986, they've helped millions of folks save up to 60% on their life insurance by comparing the rates and features of dozens of top-rated life insurance products. A healthy 50-year-old non-smoker can buy a half a million dollars of 10-year level term for less than 45 bucks a month. A 60-year-old under 120 bucks a month. Longer or permanent terms are available. Even if you already own life insurance, you really need to check out my friends at AccuQuote. Don't worry about health issues. Remember, they help me. As a pastor, I'm concerned about your soul and helping you to make sure your family is taken care of. Life insurance is more affordable now than ever, so don't make them wish you'd made that call. 877-437-4781. Call now. 877-437-4781. 877-437-4781. policy points and availability vary by state. back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We're talking about uh, some election-related things, not surprising, considering that yesterday was Election Day. And Colonel, you were explaining to us that uh, as you served as a, a poll observer, that there is a certain equality in, uh, in elections here in America. I love the example that you were giving. People came in... Civil soldiers came in in uniform. People who put their lives on the line to defend our right to vote, one ballot. People who were in wheelchairs, one ballot. That is an idea of equality. Joshua Berman, in his book, Created Equal, How the Bible Broke with Ancient Political Thought, makes the observation that if there is one idea that people in the ancient world thought was self-evident, it was that people were not created equal. And the idea that we are created equal, he says, that is a biblical concept. Now, one of the candidates, Kamala Harris, made the statement that there is a difference between equality and equity, and we need both, indicating that we should be the same at the end of the race rather than at the beginning of the race. And that's not what the founders meant by equality. They meant we should all be equal before the law. We should all have one vote. Some people might be more persuasive than others and getting others to vote as they see fit, but the only way they can do that is persuading each individual one at a time to change their votes. But anyway, the point simply being that, yes, we do have this concept that we are created equal, and our voting system certainly reflects that concept of being created equal. Another thing we notice here is that 
the polls certainly have been wrong. I have people who are telling me that Trump is going to win this by a landslide, and obviously that did not happen. There are those who are convinced that the polls were showing he was going to be solidly defeated. That obviously also did not happen. Clearly, he has performed better than most of the media pollsters were expecting him to perform. In fact, I think it's fair to say that President Trump would have won in a landslide had it not been for COVID. And COVID is not something that anyone could have anticipated. And I'm not sure that anyone's response to COVID would have been any better than that of the president. But we need to pray that God will continue to work. And he certainly has not finished working in this election yet. And it seems like he's keeping us waiting for too long as we pray. And maybe that God is saying, well, you know, I like it that you're praying for me and praying for me to intervene and you're expressing your dependence on me. And I think I'd like to keep it that way a little bit longer. And if he is dragging this out, maybe that is the reason. Anyway, keep this matter in prayer. But as we said, we are going to continue to teach the Constitution regardless of how this election comes out. Well, let's go to the Constitution itself then as we look at what the Constitution has to say concerning the election of a president and a vice president. And a lot of people wonder, why is it that we have an electoral college and why is it that we vote in that electoral college and that somebody who may not have received the majority or plurality of the popular vote nationwide might necessarily gain the electoral vote? Well, the answer is simply this. We are a nation, but a nation that is composed of states. You know, we start out by saying, as the Constitution begins in its preamble, we, the people, not we, the states. But let's look what it actually says. We, the people of the United States. Now, the delegates to that convention were selected by the 12 states. 13th state, Rhode Island, did not send delegates. They voted at the convention, one vote for each state to be cast as the majority of delegates from that state present in voting wanted it to be cast. They signed the Constitution as states, and that's why we can say that the ratification clause of the Constitution done by convention, by unanimous consent of the states present, it was unanimous consent of the states present, that is, all 12 states, a majority of the delegates present and voting from each of those 12 states voted to sign the Constitution and approve it. But there were several individual delegates that did not, so it was not unanimous consent of all delegates. It went to the states, and the states ratified the convention and states the Constitution and state-ratifying conventions so again, it's ratified by states. So we are a union of states, and we have general powers from the people, but other powers that are delegated to the federal government by the states. And the power to elect, then, is a power that we elect our president and vice president by the electoral college by the states. And it's a complicated process. 
It's a process that has been revised several times. In fact, more amendments dealing with the issue of presidential elections than any other subject. The 12th Amendment amends the Constitution in this regard, as does the 20th, the 22nd, and the 25th. But let's look to what the original plan was. Originally, as we looked to Article 2, Section 1, we read there that the, each state is going to appoint electors. And these electors will be appointed in a manner as the state legislature shall direct. It goes on to say that no government official, in other words, no congressman and no senator, can serve as an elector. That's one of the things they wanted to do to make sure that the electoral college that chose the president and vice president was not simply part of the legislative branch or part of the judicial branch. They can't hold any other office if they're going to serve as an elector. And as to how their electors were to be selected, well, it says that'll be as the legislature shall direct. And initially, in some states, apparently they did not actually have elections for a president. Rather, the state legislature simply elected the electors, chose those electors as people they thought were fit. And in some states, they would have a popular vote, and the legislature then would confirm the election of the electors based on that popular vote. And then the electors would meet. And they would meet as states and in states. It said that they were to meet on the same day. That's to prevent each, any slate of electors from one state being influenced by what the electors from another state had decided. After all, we didn't have the kind of communication then that they could immediately check email or check the internet and see what New Hampshire had just done before they cast their vote. And so they then meet within each state. Now, this is something that was a little bit surprising to me when I first learned this. I originally had thought years ago that the way the Electoral College worked is all of these electors, and the electors, by the way, the number of the electors is determined by the Constitution, and each state has the same number of electors as the number of its congressmen and senators put together. If your state has two senators, as every state does, there are two electors. If your state has one congressman, then you have three electors. If your state has eight congressmen, then you have 10 electors. And this does give a little advantage to the smaller states to counterbalance the fact that candidates tend to campaign more in the larger states. But I used to think that this electoral college would get together together somewhere in Washington, D.C. and cast their votes. But no, they don't. They vote in each state, and then their votes are transmitted. Welcome back 
to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you were describing as we went to break how uh, you had envisioned the Electoral College meeting in, in Washington, D.C., and uh, I'm curious to hear, you know, how your perception of how this college must work versus how it actually works. Uh, how close how close were you in your uh, your idea of how you thought it worked? Well, I was surprised to find that they never do assemble in Washington, D.C. Rather, they will assemble in each state. And usually that's going to be in the capital of each state. There, those electors will cast their votes, and those votes will be transmitted to Washington, D.C. That's done instantly today. For those days, of course, it took some time. It was sent to the president of the Senate, who, of course, is the vice president. And the vice president, in a session of both the Senate and the House together, would open the envelopes from the states with their electoral votes and have them counted and then announce the results. Now, at this time, what's interesting about this is each elector would vote for two candidates and not designating one as president and one as vice president, but simply vote for two candidates. And if one had a majority, then that person would be the president. But if no one had a majority, then it would go to the, to the House of Representatives, the U.S. Congress, the lower house. And the lower house then would take the top five vote-getters and then vote on who, on who would be president. And the way they would vote in the house, each state would have one vote and that vote would apparently be cast as the majority of the congressmen from that state decided to cast it. And probably they would look to how their own state electors had cast their electoral ballots. Now, it's interesting, in 1789, when we began this procedure, that, of course, there was no vice president yet. And so the Senate elected a man by the name of John Langton, to be the acting president of the Senate for the sole and express purpose of opening those votes. And that was his sole job in that very temporary position he occupied as the vice president. I guess you could call him the first vice president. Also, the Congress was to set the day that that was to take place. And the there would not be any further elections on this. Congress could have an extended vote on the floor on this, and then they would go to the Senate afterwards to select a vice president based upon the runner-ups. Now, the interesting thing here, too, is that they didn't anticipate at this time that we'd be having political parties, and that maybe does seem a little bit short-sighted, but they did not anticipate that we would have political parties, and so they thought that Probably the person that got the most votes could be president. The person that got the second most votes could be vice president. And that they would serve together as a team and do very well. And any personal differences, they would put aside. Well, this article, Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, goes on to say a few more things about the president. It says that the president must be a natural-born citizen, 
I used to joke and say that this meant that the constitutional framers endorsed natural child notes, but no, even a literalist like me wouldn't take it quite that way. But part of the reason for this is they wanted this person to have no foreign loyalties. They'd seen experiences, for example, in England, where, for example, William and Mary would be brought in from Holland in 1688 and to be president or to be king and queen. And that William in particular may have greater loyalties to the Netherlands than to England. And then not long thereafter, George I is brought in because of his bloodline and is brought in to be king of, of Hanover in Germany. And he didn't even speak English and probably had more allegiances to Germany. And so they wanted a president who is a natural born citizen of the United States, or if not, then a citizen at the time the United States was founded, that he had to be at least 35 years of age, they wanted some maturity, and that he had to have been a resident of the United States for some 14 years. The vice president was to have the same qualifications as the president. Well, now as we move to the 12th Amendment in 1804, and part of the reason for the 12th Amendment is that We've had the election of 1800, and in this election, we have seen the result was that, that, well, first of all, we had the election in 1796 where John Adams becomes the president, and Thomas Jefferson, who possibly had more popular support, became the vice president, but at any rate, they were of opposite persuasions. They didn't get along. They had been friends earlier in life and became friends again later in life. But at this time, they were very hostile to one another. Jefferson, in fact, openly thought to block many of the things that President Adams was trying to do. And anyway, so the idea of having two people that could be a very opposite persuasion, says president and vice president, well, it seemed that wasn't working out. And then came the election of 1800, where Adams as a Federalist, is seeking re-election. The Federalists were basically opposed to political parties, although they sort of were one, but not that well organized. Jefferson and the Democratic-Republicans were a much more organized party. And anyway, so Jefferson, if if the Federalists had all united behind Adams, he might have been re-elected, but they were split. Alexander Hamilton thought that Adams wasn't a true blue enough Federalist and So he wanted another candidate, Pinckney of South Carolina. Anyway, so the result was that Jefferson and Aaron Burr had the, were tied for a majority in the Electoral College, and Adams was third, Pinckney was fourth. So it went to the House, and after 36 ballots in the House, Jefferson was finally elected with Hamilton's support, saying Jefferson or Burr, the former without a doubt, He didn't care for either one, but he at least thought Jefferson had some integrity and Burr had none. Well, so then we had a president and vice president that obviously weren't getting along well, so this didn't work out. So in 1804, we adopt the 12th Amendment. And it's interesting, this is the last amendment by the founding generation. You know, we tweaked the Constitution in 1789 with the Bill of Rights. And then in the 1790s with the 11th Amendment to alter a Supreme Court decision on states being sued. And now to tweak the 
presidential election, we have the 12th Amendment in 1804, and there won't be any more amendments until 1865, after the war between the states, 60-year period, without any amendments. Anyway, rather than saying that the Electoral College is going to vote for two people, rather they're just going to vote for a president and for a vice president with the qualification that is there before that the president and vice president could not be from the same state. This issue came up in the year 2000 when there was some question whether George Bush and his running mate Dick Cheney were from the same state. Cheney was said to be from Wyoming, although he had some ties to Texas as well, but they determined he was from Wyoming, and so that wasn't considered to be a conflict. But anyway, the person with the most votes in the Electoral College, if it was a majority, would be elected. But if there was no majority, then the top three would go to the House, again, with one vote in each state until a president was elected. And then it would go to the Senate at that point to choose the vice president from the remainder of those. And went on to say very clearly that no one can be elected vice president if he is ineligible to serve as president. Same qualifications for both. Which raises the question then, what about if there is a two-term limit for president? Can Back in 64, for example, when Republicans won at Goldwater, they thought of making Eisenhower his running mate, suggesting that he could be ineligible to be elected president, but he's ineligible to be elected vice president and then serve president if Goldwater were to die. Well, the general consensus was no, he would not be eligible to be vice president either. Anyway, we'll go on to the 22nd, the 23rd, and the 25th Amendments after our break, but as we can see, We have made this a very complex issue, but for a reason. We are trying to balance the rights of the larger states with the rights of the smaller states and trying to preserve the concept that we are, in fact, a union of states, and we do elect our president as states. Okay, on that note, we will take a very quick break. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We'll be back after these messages. Are you tired of high cable TV rates? Sign up for Dish today and get a $500 bonus offer while supplies last. Plus, lock in your price for two years guaranteed. Call All-American Dish, your dish-authorized retailer now. 800-610-5739. 800-610-5739. That's 800-610-5739. Offers require credit qualification, 24-month commitment, early termination fee, and auto pay. Restrictions apply. Call for details. Trade pros. Whether you specialize in service or new construction, Ferguson knows firsthand how much work goes into a long day on the job, which is why we're committed to offering the products and solutions to get every job done right. With over a 1,000 locations, an unmatched selection of specialty products, tools, and supplies, our pro pickup and same or next day delivery, you can trust that doing business with Ferguson will be the easiest part of your hard day's work. Visit ferguson.com to find a counter location near you. 
Gold prices keep climbing and just hit an all-time high. COVID-19 and battered global economies are sending investors to the safe haven of physical gold to avoid losing value in their IRAs, 401ks, and stocks. Don't stand on the sidelines and wonder what the stock market is going to do next. Protect and grow your financial future today with a call to American Bullion, the leader in gold investments. You have valid concerns, and we have simple solutions for all needs and budgets. In fact, we specialize in first-time gold buyers as well as veterans. Find out about American Bullion's hassle-free process to transfer any portion of your IRA, 401k, or stocks into the long-term safety of a gold IRA today. Call 800-GOLD-IRA and ask for our free gold guide. That's 800-465-3472. 800-GOLD-IRA. Grow your financial future with the rising value of physical gold and protect yourself during this worldwide crisis. Call the leader, American Bullion. 800-GOLD-IRA. If your credit card bills have gotten out of hand and you care about your credit, call Consolidated Credit now. If the interest rates on your credit cards are so high, it'll take years to get out of debt. Call Consolidated Credit now. They've helped over 6 million people with credit card debt. Without destroying your credit, they can consolidate your debts into one lower payment, reduce your interest rates, and get you out of debt fast. The program works. Call Consolidated Credit now. Call 800-406-0046. That's 800-406-0046. Consolidated Credit Counseling Services, Inc. 5701 West Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33313. Licensed by the New York Department of Financial Services and by the Vermont Department of Financial Regulation. Maryland DM 1492, Oregon DM 80092. Licensed by the Virginia State Corporation. Commission license number DC83. Service may adversely affect the individual's credit. Non-payment of debt may lead to additional finance charges or collections activity, including legal action, not a loan company. Once again, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are talking about the Electoral College as well as a number of constitutional amendments which have affected and impacted the Electoral College. And I have to admit, Colonel, I I really didn't realize how uh, how deeply uh, some of these uh, these amendments had impacted this. But in hearing your explanation, it, it's clear that this wasn't just uh, you know mischief someone trying to, to game the system, but uh, but actively trying to, to protect the integrity of elections and make sure that the large population states didn't dominate the smaller population states. That's exactly what it was, and it does remind us again that we are not a pure democracy. We are a republic, a constitutional republic in which the majority generally runs things, but in which the minority has certain rights that even a majority may not take away. Anyway, we do see some further amendments that tweaks us a bit. The 20th Amendment in 1933 makes one major change here, and actually I'm not sure how major it is, but it changed the date on which the new president takes office. The new president takes office on January 20th, and anyway, it used to be that the new president would take office in March, and that meant quite a long period of time with a lame duck president and a lame duck Congress. And you do need a little time for a transition, but it was thought that was too much. And especially as means of transportation become a lot speedier, means of communication become a lot speedier. So that was moved up to January 20th by the 20th amendment of 1933. And then it was also made clear that 
what happens if, let's say, we elect a president, but that president dies before he takes office? What happens then? Well, the amendment says that if the president-elect dies before taking office, then the vice president-elect becomes the president-elect. And then that means the vice president-elect becomes, or who is the president-elect becomes the president then on January 20th. Now, another thing this does is it means that when the vice president takes office in place of the president, the vice president is now the president. That might seem self-evident, but it wasn't quite clear. In fact, for quite some time, for over a century, there was debate. Is the vice president simply the acting president, or is he the actual president? When William Henry Harrison died, his vice president, John Tyler, declared that he was fully the president for the remainder of that term. But there were some that didn't really think that he was fully the president. And so finally, it takes the 20th Amendment to make that clear that the vice president becomes the president-elect, and he actually becomes president if the president no longer serves. Well, what happens if, let's say the president, let's say we have a president, and let's say the vice president dies. Or let's say the vice president leaves office, and we've had a couple of occasions when the vice president had to leave office, and in that case, the office is vacant, and the way it works, it provides that Congress can, can, find what, can provide for things like this, but the way it works then is that the president then appoints, or I should say nominates, a vice president, and the vice president then has to be confirmed by, I believe it's a two-thirds vote of both houses of Congress, and then becomes the, the vice president, the newly confirmed vice president. Well, here was a really difficult situation. It existed back in the days of Watergate, back in the 1970s, that both President Nixon and Vice President Agnew were accused of various forms of misconduct, Vice President Agnew resigned. At that point, President Nixon nominated a congressman, Gerald Ford of Michigan, to serve as president, and the Senate confirmed Gerald or to serve as vice president, and the Congress confirmed Gerald Ford as vice president. Well, then shortly thereafter, in the face of what looked like virtually certain impeachment and removal, then President Nixon resigned, which meant, of course, that the unelected vice president, Gerald Ford, became president, but now we don't have a vice president once again. So the newly chosen President Ford then nominated the former governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, to be the vice president and Rockefeller was confirmed by both houses of Congress, and he became the vice president. So, for the first time in American history, and the last time, up to now at least, we had both a president, Ford, and a vice president, Rockefeller, neither of whom 
had been elected by the people. Well, then what happens if, let's say, both of them are suddenly taken out of office, both resign, both are killed, and we try to avoid that. In fact, we try to avoid, especially in a crisis, having the president and the vice president be in the same place so that they can both be killed at the same time. But let's suppose that both of them suddenly became ineligible for office. When that happens, then Congress has a procedure by which they designate who is going to be next in presidential succession. Now, Bill Clinton, when he was elected in 1992, was speaking to a group of high school students at Monticello Jefferson's home after the election and before he took office. A student asked him, if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, would you appoint him to a cabinet position, and if so, which one? And Jefferson, or rather, well, William Jefferson Clinton answered, if Thomas Jefferson were alive today, I would appoint him Secretary of State, and then Al Gore and I would resign so Jefferson could become president. <laughs> Problem was, the commander-in-chief-elect did not know his chain of command. Now, up until... 1947, that would have been correct. The way it originally was set up at that time is if both offices became vacant, then the cabinet officials would take office by order of seniority. And by order of seniority, we mean not the age of the cabinet official or how long that official has served, but when that cabinet official was established. The first cabinet to be established was the Department of State, and so the Secretary of State would be first, the Secretary of Defense or Secretary of War originally would be second, Attorney General third, and so on. Anyway, so that was the way it was at that time until, until about 1947. 1947, Congress changed the order. And now, if both the presidency and the vice presidency are vacant, the Speaker of the House becomes president and Next, after the Speaker of the House, is the President pro tem of the Senate. That's not the Vice President, nor is it Majority Leader McConnell. The President pro tem of the Senate is Senator Charles Grassley of Iowa. Usually, and this, the President pro tem is elected, but usually the President pro tem is elected by tradition as being the senior member of the majority party in the Senate. So, he would be next. Then after that, it would be the cabinet officials by order of seniority, as we've said. Anyway, so that's the 20, 20th Amendment. The 22nd Amendment establishes a two-term limit for the presidency. Originally, there was no limit, but and that two-term limit was a tradition that Washington established until Franklin D. Roosevelt, in the midst of depression and war, ran and was elected to a third term and then a fourth term and died shortly into his fourth term. And so people seemed to decide that maybe the two-term limit was a good idea after all, and so they made it an amendment in the 22nd Amendment of 1951. And it does not include partial terms. For example, if a vice president becomes president, and serves, serves out the rest of the president's term, let's say the remaining three years of the president's term, he can still be elected to two full terms after that. Anyway, so 
We haven't really looked at this point at the 25th Amendment, although we did talk about that several weeks ago. That is the amendment that provides what happens if the vice presidency becomes vacant or the presidency becomes vacant. But maybe we can go into that next week. And maybe by next week, we'll know the outcome of this election. Boy, knock on wood. I'm sure hoping that we do. Thank you so much, Colonel Eidsmo. Again, you have been listening to Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Check out the archives of Constitution Classroom at lovingliberty.net.